This is Passion with Dr. Lori Batito and John Paul. How to find passion after infidelity. Uh, Dr. Lori, we're going to find out, is it a case of once a cheater, always a cheater? I would imagine in your world, you have this conversation a lot. <laughs> I do. And the answer is kind of iffy, right? So some research showing, yeah, people are more, more likely to cheat if they've cheated once. But that doesn't mean that people can't change. So we'll look at, uh, you know, how you can spot somebody who uh, you have to watch out for and who is most likely not to cheat again. We're going to get to that in a moment. But first, your questions. Love. Sex, relationships, it can get complicated. We all have questions. Dr. Lori helps with the answers you need. You, of course, can submit questions anytime you want. Just go to drlori.com. Dr. Lori, we start with a question. My girlfriend has never had an orgasm during sex. How can I help her achieve this? She still enjoys it a lot and doesn't back down when we fool around, but I feel guilty that she can achieve orgasm when we have intercourse like I almost always do. How can I help her achieve one? Is this a frequent question? Uh, it is, and simply because uh, there's sometimes not much understanding about women and orgasm, right? So, I'm, so right here he's talking about uh, her not having an orgasm during intercourse. First of all, there's no need to feel any guilt because he's really not doing anything wrong. Um, we have to understand that close to 80% of women don't orgasm, don't orgasm through intercourse alone. So they need that clitoral stimulation and that's really, really important. And that doesn't mean that the partner isn't enjoying the intercourse, but this is a good place to start with foreplay, foreplay, foreplay. That's why it is so important. The other thing, if women want to um, maybe have a better chance of experiencing orgasm through intercourse, they need to play around with their positions so that they, uh, they find the position where it's easier for them to get that clitoral stimulation, where they can either grind into their partner or have access to the clitoris with their hand or the partner's hand uh, during intercourse. So, it's up to her. It's not his, it's not the guy's job or the partner's job to make sure the partner orgasms. She is responsible for her orgasm. She is the one who has to be able to say to him, this feels good, that feels good, do more of this, do more of that. So I don't want guys feeling guilty that they're having orgasms when their partners are not. There are many factors that go into uh, a woman's ability to have an orgasm, and it isn't just about the stimulation, but also what's going on in her head. So it's important that people don't feel responsible uh, for the other person's orgasm. Can we speak a little bit about men and our nature to want to keep a scoreboard because it's sort of it's sort of in our dna where it's like i feel that men after sex kind of want to break it down like they would a football game and figure out all the plays and what worked and what didn't work uh and women they're not wired that way they they don't want to always confirm that that was a check mark or yeah you scored a touchdown there they kind of just want to enjoy the experience and then kind of move on 
Right, because it's a it's a body and soul experience too, right? It's not just about uh, technique. the The thing is, too, you can have all the moves, so to speak, but every game is different, in and meaning that every woman is different, also, and every woman at any given time is different. So one thing might feel good at one time, and at another time may not may not do the trick, right? Which is why you can't be responsible in that way. You're responsible to find out what your partner likes and to communicate that and to want to pleasure them, uh, but they're responsible for giving you the roadmap, the the play, basically, that you need to follow uh, to get her there. And how much of that should take place, for lack of a better term, in-game versus, you know, maybe the next day while you're having lunch, sort of going, hey, last night, that was kind of fun. Did you like this, that, or the other thing? Or is it or is it in-game better? Because uh, I, I feel that maybe while it's going on, too many questions might actually be a turnoff. Right. You, you, you don't want to necessarily ask the questions continuously. Is this okay? Is this okay? Can I do this? Should I do this? What do you want? Um, but it is up to her uh, or the partner to be able to to say either with words or with actions or with moans or what have you to direct the partner to say, yes, keep doing that. That's really good. That feels really nice so that they learn your body as well. And then you can have conversations, which are not so easy to have. Those sexual conversations are not always so easy to have, right? And people have a hard time uh, talking openly about sexuality, but it's a good place to start practicing those kinds of communication. Good lovers are, are lovers that communicate well about sexuality as well. This next question, I feel it's something that is discussed with many people and half of it kind of bring it up jokingly. And the other half are like dead serious about it. Uh, they say, Dr. Lori, people say having sex more often could cause a vagina to loosen and that virgins are tighter than non-virgins. But my friend said that that is a myth and that the real cause of vaginal loosening is getting old. My question is, what are the myths and truths about vaginal <laughs> looseness? I know what you're thinking. You're thinking of the old joke, right? Where after having a baby, the father says, uh, can you add a little extra stitch? <laughs> no <laughs> right? dad has ever said that. No dad has ever said that. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm going to check with your wife on that one. Uh, <laughs> you know, the vagina is a wonderful organ that stretches to accommodate a penis that can stretch large enough to pass a baby. Imagine what a miracle organ that is, right? Mm -hmm. uh, okay, but just like penises, vaginas also come in different sizes. Some are smaller or tighter than others. Now, once a vagina is stretched, it generally comes back to its original size. Uh, so you have to think about the vagina like an elastic band. It can be stretched, but returns to its original state once you stop stretching it. So no matter how much intercourse you have, that does not cause the vagina 
to stretch. However, some women do describe that their vaginas have gotten looser, um, maybe following um, vaginal births, especially if they've had multiple um, multiple births, and with aging, because the vagina is also a muscle, and the muscle, like all our muscles as we age, can fatigue, right? It's like if you stretch an elastic, uh, mm-hmm. like if, it, if an elastic gets old, right, and it dries up, what happens to that elastic? It loses its bounce, right? It loses mm-hmm. its its. Uh, so it's a little bit like that. As the vagina gets older, it loses that um, the elasticity, and so it may feel uh, that looseness may feel there. So there's things that can be done with this. Of course, there's uh, vaginal pelvic floor exercises to strengthen your whole pelvic floor, which is really important. Kegel exercises that women can do, uh, making sure that. They have um, hormone replacement in the vagina to keep the estrogen kind of flowing, to keep the elasticity. But just to get back to the original question, it has nothing to do with the amount of sex somebody has. All right. Fair enough. Uh, This one a little bit more uh, serious. But again, sadly, I think many people go through this. So it's a, a, a good question to ask because I think the answer will benefit many. Uh, Dr. Lori, when I was 17, I went through uh, sexual trauma. I had my first relationship when I turned 19, and while it took a while to be able to have full penetrative sex, uh, thankfully my boyfriend was very supportive and patient. I then started counseling to try and deal with my PTSD, and then my partner and I started having problems. Having sex would be very painful, and it would seem no matter how much foreplay we tried, penetration was still just too painful. Over time, I've been able to use tampons to accept uh, or accept digital penetration, but having full sexual intercourse is too painful, and it is as, it's as if my vagina won't expand slash relax enough to allow my boyfriend to enter me. I've seen my doctor who just told me to relax. Easier said than done. Is there anything you can recommend to treat this? I feel I will just never be able to have proper sex again, and that makes me worried for my relationship for the future. Please help. So this person seems to be describing a condition that we call vaginismus, which basically is the involuntary contraction of the vaginal muscle, which is very common in women who have experienced trauma. It's like, think of it as a tightening of the the muscle so tight that that penetration or anything entering is uh, impossible. It's like a fear response. You know, when you you get scared and you tense up, this is what's happening. So, uh, and, and the partner will will describe it as like hitting a wall, for example, or a doctor might have a hard time doing a pelvic um, exam. So her doctor is right in saying, uh, you know, you need to relax, but. It's an involuntary condition, right? So it, you can't just tell yourself, okay, relax. Like it's involuntary what's happening. So it's going to take some time to actually learn what it means to relax those vaginal muscles. And the best treatment outcome has been with, um, a 
using uh, or going to see a pelvic floor physiotherapist uh, who can help work directly in the vagina with you and helps you kind of stretch and and also uh, teach you what it is to relax that muscle and tighten, relax and tighten. So you have control over it. Remember, vaginismus is involuntary. We want to make now this voluntary, right, where you can Mm -hmm. learn to contract. So uh, this with psychotherapy uh, to help um, heal from the trauma or the sex therapy to help you heal from the trauma is highly effective when you bring those two together. This is a, a condition that is absolutely curable and workable and fixable it just requires time and patience and and a commitment to it really i just want to quickly and i know this probably could open up a pandora's box of of thoughts and answers but quickly for the partner on the other side that maybe is in a relationship and they discover that their partner has had this trauma in their life what's something you could advise them to to, to do or not do that could help their partner? So having that sexual communication is really important. Having compassion and patience and being able to tell, ask your partner, is this okay? Please let me know if at any point you're feeling triggered, understanding this, not putting pressure on the partner. Obviously, as a loving partner, you don't want to hurt anybody, right? You don't want to hurt the person you love. So it's really important to put her front and center so that you're not causing more trauma because that's not what you want to do as much as she is wanting to have a healthy sex life there's all this past negativity attached to sexuality that she has to overcome and it's it's helpful when uh, her partner is on board with that right and is saying i'm here you're safe with me uh, and that's what she has to feel that safety Uh, One more in the mailbag, Dr. Lori. My girlfriend and I have been together for a couple months, but no matter what I do, I still feel that I can't really fully trust her. She's given me no reason to doubt her and has been uh, more honest and candid than any of my past girlfriends. It's not like my last girlfriend cheated or I have any reason to be distrustful. I think it's maybe partly to do with the fact that I like her way more than I've ever liked anyone else before. I really don't know. How can I let go and trust her? Sometimes I tamp down the bad feelings and unnecessary suspicion, but sometimes it takes over my brain and I wind up being a jealous jerk, which I absolutely don't want to be. (laughs) So first of all, jealousy with no apparent reason to me signals that you have insecurities that you have not dealt with, right? So now these insecurities can be maybe around not feeling good enough, maybe it's a fear of abandonment or any number of other triggers. And these are often related to uh, maybe our upbringing, what we've been told as children, uh, our attachment, um, negative experiences we might have experienced. So I think it's best for this person to seek out therapy to discuss these issues because otherwise what ends up happening or what could happen is you end up pushing people away, right? No one wants to be accused of something time and time again when they've done nothing wrong, especially if you're being a jerk, right? If you're being a jerk about it and they're doing nothing wrong, eventually they're like, I don't want to put up with this anymore. Like, this is too hard. I don't want to walk on eggshells all the time. I don't want to be... um, 
like somebody being suspicious of everything that I'm doing. That is no fun for anybody, but that's something the person owns, right? They own that, especially if the person's doing nothing to uh, raise any kind of real suspicion. We appreciate your questions. We encourage you to reach out. Love, sex, relationships. Uh, We can get your questions answered on our next edition of Passion. Just visit drlaurie.com. Passion for learning, life, and love. Coming up in Sex in the News, how a little whipped cream episode turned out to be horribly awkward. That on the way. First, how to find passion after infidelity. Dr. Lori, is it a case of once a cheater, always a cheater? And does anyone ever go through life not dealing with cheating in, in some way, shape, or form at some point? You know, it's so interesting that uh, if you look at statistically, I read one one uh, statistic that said that about 80% of relationships are affected by infidelity, either from one or the other or both. So you're talking about something that is rather common, which is unfortunate, right? Because it's something that could be quite traumatic to mm-hmm. the somebody being cheated on. But and infidelity is such a huge topic. I mean, we'll talk about this in future episodes because there's just so many different parts to it. But one one question people have is, you know, what if my partner cheated in the past, are they likely to cheat again? And that's a valid question because mm-hmm. you you want to be able to trust, you know, it's it's like asking, can I trust this partner now that they have been discovered now that they say oh my god i'm never going to do this again i feel terrible and um you know do you do you trust again and it can take a while before you get to that level of trust and then it makes me think of relationships that started as an infidelity so think of like the the person who cheated on their on their let's say wife with another woman and ended up marrying that woman Mm-hmm. So so how is that other woman now, the new woman, supposed to ever really trust the guy yeah. because she was, you know what I mean? So yeah. it, it like the the relationship begins with an infidelity and actually statistics show that like 90 to 95% of those relationships don't actually work out so, and you wonder why, right? It's like you can't start a relationship without that that baseline of trust. It's really tough. Is there any statistics you've seen over the years, Dr. Lori, about demographics on cheating? Like, is it something that happens more in younger years than older years, or does it just never change? Um, it does tend to happen in younger years, but but that doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. I mean, I see it uh, across the lifespan, right? I mean, people who are in their 60s cheating, 50s, 40s, 30s, all of that. But there are statistics that show that like a person is likely to cheat in, uh, let's say, in their 30s, um, sometimes when their partner is pregnant. Like in moments of high stress, if you think of moments of high stress in a person's life, that uh, mm-hmm which causes more uh you know relationship difficulties then that that's where they might be most at risk um at risk for cheating but we need to also look at the one the the, the people who are more likely to do it again or less likely to do it. and what what is it that you can look out for and also like what kind of questions can you ask if you are dating 
and you, you know, you want to know, like you find out that this person left their marriage or left their last relationship because they cheated and you're getting involved with them. Like you have to ask yourself a lot of questions at that point, right? What sort of things should you be looking for? Well, you'd be looking for things like uh, how much responsibility do they do they take for their behavior? Are they, you know, in fact, remorseful or uh, like you have to listen, really listen. Are they blaming someone else? You know, are they saying, well, she was such a rotten wife or girlfriend that I felt, you know, I, I felt uh, okay to cheat or, or that's why I did it. So blaming someone else, blaming something else that led them to cheat. Uh, if they, if they start saying, um, you know, oh, it's it, like they, they kind of express shame about it, right? In, and it's not about, it's like I'm a victim kind of shame, like where they just say, oh, I was a, I was bad then. I was really bad. And then they shove it under the carpet without really understanding what they did. So you want to see, did the person, does the person really understand either the damage that was done or the reasons why they went down that path? Like you really, you have to look into yourself, right? You have to be able to, mm-hmm. that person has to have the ability to look inwards and you would want to know like what did you learn about this cheating behavior what did you learn about yourself through all of this what did you learn about relationships what did you what have you done or what do you plan to do so that this is not something you turn to in those moments of of difficulty or or what have you I would imagine in every case of cheating is different but there's probably a a large group that maybe in their cheating, when they try and justify it or they tell their story, they were searching for something. They had a void that needed to be filled, uh, or whether it was an adventure or love or just connection or whatever it is. What kind of tips can we give couples so that they're kind of putting that insurance in their life that they never leave their 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 loved one? Out searching, like they, they're working together, uh, to avoid it. Is there, are there things couples can do together to kind of give them a layer of insurance? Well, look, there's never any 100% insurance, right? But yeah, I think a fair proofing your marriage is a good, it's a good start. And you have to do that by making sure that you always maintain a certain level of intimacy, which means, um, really having good conversations, being able to be there for one another, making sure you each, the other one feels that you have their back. Um, having compassion for each other is really important. Being able to have these communications, all couples go through difficult periods in a, in a lifetime, right? Being able mm-hmm. to confront those difficulties, talk about them, get help if necessary, is what you need to do rather than run away from them. Cheating is often, I'm running away from right I'm, I'm either I'm bored so I'm going to get excitement or I'm that life is too stressful at home so I'm going into the arms of somebody else like deal with the issues that are happening before they get to a point where you feel that you are kind of running away sometimes I hear people like people will say if you go on the Ashley Madison site for example which is like a cheating website that they often come mm-hmm. out with statistics and they they ask people like why are you here and some people are will say that they the cheating has helped save their marriage. In other words, they if they couldn't cheat, they wouldn't stay married. But you know, how fair is that to the other 
to the other person. So some people don't want to leave their families or they don't, they don't want to cause the chaos that a divorce might cause. So they go on the sly and have their cake and eat it too kind of thing, you know? Well, I and mean, when you speak of Ashley Madison, maybe we should give some tips as well just for uh, people to be on the lookout, like red flags you should be watching for that maybe something's not right uh, with your with your better half. So it's not one size fits all, but some people will tell you they just have a gut feeling. You know, they, they can sense it. They know their partner so well, they can sense it. And so they do a little bit of sleuthing and they find, uh, they find information. People are generally not so good at hiding. Like, it's easy to find, to find clues, right? And especially with social media and texts and emails and, and all kinds of things. But look at somebody's behavior. Are they feeling, do you feel that they they are, have disconnected from you? Uh, it, has their behavior changed? Like they're staying at work for longer now. Uh, they're traveling more. They um, they seem to behave more secretively. In other words, where they once would leave their phone lying around, now they take their phone with them everywhere. They keep their phone face down. Um those are just some of them, you know, sudden, a sudden interest in, in working out, a sudden interest in looking better, wearing cologne, <laughs> uh, you know, things like that. I mean, one thing itself isn't, isn't indicative. Like just because your partner starts going to the gym doesn't necessarily mean they're cheating. But if you add that to all the other signs, then, uh, you might want to, might want to think about that. We need a checklist. Yeah, and you can go online. There are there are definitely checklists ab- about this. You know, there's there's all kinds of signs to uh, to look for, and you can also look at people's social media. <laughs> you can do all kinds of things too uh, to see. And I'm always amazed when, especially women. Women are really amazing at investigative stuff. Like so many women, I'm like, you guys, you should go into business because you, the things they will uncover, it, it blows my mind when I, when I look at the, the stuff they have been able to, to find. But it usually starts with that, a feeling. And if you speak to private investigators who do this kind of work, they will tell you that 99% of the time that somebody calls them to look into something, they will find something. So that feeling is your first, um, kind of your first Clue. Always trust your gut. Exactly. The headlines to headboards. This is sex in the news. This first story, Dr. Lori, actually dovetails pretty well after what we were just talking about. And that is a new study that shows sex inspires dishonesty in both men and women. Yeah, interesting. This is an article uh, by Dr. Madeleine Fugère in Psychology Today that uh, talked about this, that both men and women lie to make themselves more desirable to potential mates. Now, I, I don't know about you, but does this really surprise you? I mean, I think it just can, it kind of confirms some stuff, you know, uh, but it's interesting. I'm always fascinated by psychological research because of the way they kind of get to these these answers, you know. Uh, So this is new research by Birnbaum et al. uh, that shows that when primed with sexual stimuli, both men and women lie to potential new partners in order to make themselves seem more similar and more 
desirable. So that reminds me of like the conversation. It's like, um, oh yeah, I watched, uh, you know, I watched tennis the other day and the, the other person, oh, I love tennis. They've never watched a tennis game in their life or, you know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> Things like that. So, uh, to make themselves more desirable. So they did a bunch of experiments and I won't go into, into all of this, but they tried to pair like when there's sexual stimuli, meaning like when, when there's a rat, when there's potential for, for this to go further kind of thing, when you're attracted to, um, that's when people tended to lie more. So uh, she writes here, the results of the experiments show that both men and women change their attitudes to match their partner's attitudes. And this effect was strengthened in the sexual priming condition. So when there was sexual stimuli, when there was that potential or that arousability, that's when they lied uh, more. So priming participants to think about sex made them more likely to modify their attitudes to match the attitudes they thought their partners held and it's a, and it was the same for both uh, genders so they wanted to make themselves appear more similar to a potential partner because they felt that this would increase the likelihood of being liked right so I don't think it, I don't think this is any big surprise really to to anybody. It just uh, no. Um, but oh, they also looked at which is interesting. We and, and I think we we've talked about this many times. But you know when you ask somebody their number, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Like, How, you okay? Yeah. Uh, so what was yeah, interesting because yeah. they looked at that dishonesty also. Both men and women lowered the number of lifetime sexual partners they reported <laughs> which is so interesting right so they because they asked them anonymously and then they asked them in front you know like in, in an interview and and so they they lowered that that number now this effect was stronger again in the sexual priming conditions in other words when they were when they were somewhat Aroused or, or by some sexual imagery, and they lowered their self-reported number of sexual partners even more in their uh, profiles versus the anonymous surveys. So when you ask them anonymously, they were honest. When and then they were able to you know to kind of compare the two. So there you go, people will lie about their their numbers. And just in conclusion, uh, the researchers suggest that sexual arousal motivates individuals to try to make themselves seem more desirable in order to maximize their chances of acceptance by new potential partners. However, the authors also emphasize that individuals are likely to keep the magnitude of their dishonesty small in case a long-term relationship develops, and those deceptions are eventually revealed. So you don't want big ass secrets here. You know, <laughs> you can't be that dishonest or somebody's yeah. going to say, Hey, if you're that dishonest, like I don't, I don't want you. So in, when you meet a new potential partner, disclosure is less likely to reflect the true self following sexual activation. So that arousal, uh, because that arousal may make people more focused on saying what needs to be said to create that positive Impression, and they don't they don't think about so much the the potential long term costs of the of the dishonesty, if you will. I laugh at that because uh, one of my buddies he met this girl, and you know after a bunch of dates we meet her. So my other buddy and I are sitting with this girl, the, the boyfriend guy. He's gone away for a bit, so we're of course saying, "Oh, so what do you like about this guy?" She goes, "Let me tell you." The first time we went out for dinner, 
I told him that I, I, whenever I have a kid, I really want to give her this name. And his reply was, oh my God, that's the <laughs> same name I wanted to get. And me and my buddy looked at each other and we're like, that is such bull. He has never, that guy has never once thought about a name for a child in his life. <laughs> there you go. You see? And, and then pick a couple more similarities and, and then you think, oh my God, we're soulmates. <laughs> yeah, we're, yeah. How did we just meet? This is unbelievable. Uh, this is a, a fascinating story in the news. Uh, Quebec's Minister for Seniors is, and this, I guess someone has to throw this out there as an idea, that they're considering a policy on sex lives of people living in long-term care facilities. Uh, long-term care facilities are, are those buildings that many of us don't think about uh, till maybe someone comes along and goes, mom or dad, you got to right. go into one of those buildings. Like if, if you don't, if you don't have family in them, you never think about them. And when, when I first read this, I thought, wait a minute, we need to have a policy for this. Uh, do we need yeah, to have a policy? Yeah, we do. For this? And I'll tell you why. Because sex doesn't end when you end it, your sex life. It doesn't end with you being in a retirement residence or a nursing home or anything like that. And I can tell you this firsthand because, um, you know, I give a lot of talks to all over the place, but I, in the last few years, I've been asked to go into these, uh, these retirement facilities or these, these buildings, as you call them, many of which are private also, right? And some are, are not. And mm-hmm. the, and I go in, what do you think I talk about when I go there? I talk about sex. Uh, I, you know, I, I promote my book. I talk about safe sex. I, I talk about using condoms. I, I give away condoms and the, the rooms are packed, John, like packed and nobody's falling asleep. You know, average age is like 84 years old. Everybody's awake. <laughs> People are asking questions. So there, your interest in sex doesn't, doesn't necessarily disappear because your body gets old. Uh, you know, I, I'm sure just if I ask you, do you think like a 40 something year old or do you, you know, sometimes I'm sure you think like a 20 year old. So exactly. Every so day. your mind doesn't age in, in the same way. So the problem is, is that the, when we put people into these, when we place people in these homes, these elderly folks, oftentimes we're separating couples or we, we forbid, mm-hmm. you know, the, the going to each other's rooms for some, some nookie time or intimacy time or, or what have you. And you can't just ignore that part of, of life. So part of the problem is the training. There, there isn't enough training, uh, to dis, you know, f- even the discussion of sexuality with, uh, with residents. So I applaud those that asked me to come in and, and give those talks because th- it, they've put it on the radar. There's also special populations. Like if you think about the LGBTQ elderly population, they're like going right yeah. back into the closet when they go into these homes. Imagine having lived your whole life, maybe with a part, a loving partner, you know, in your own home. And now you end up in a, a nursing home or a retirement residence and you, you have to go back into the closet. What do you think is more awkward? Having a sex talk with your teenager or your grandfather? 
<laughs> I think they're on equal footing. I, I think par. I, I think not. Forget your grandfather, your parents, right? Yeah. <laughs> Go like I, I've heard of so many stories where somebody goes to the nursing home and they go to the front desk and they say, "Oh, uh, is my dad in his in his room or in his apartment?" And they're like, "Oh." Um, they ring up and no, dad's not there. And then they're, they're looking for him and they, they have a sign out sheet and you know, you can't just leave, right? The door's mm-hmm. locked. Well, we know he hasn't left. And then you find out that, uh, dad has been in room 101 <laughs> with Mrs. Jones, you know? Uh, so like you, I, you hear of these stories all the time. And then you have to look at statistically too, in terms of STIs, we're seeing a rise in, uh, sexually transmitted infections in the elderly population. So they're having sex, whether you like it or not. You got to get in there and hand out more condoms, Dr. Laurie. I'm telling you, it's good. So I, I love the idea that they're, uh, they are going to look at this uh, as a policy to be able to, um, th- you know, talk about the issue of consent, talk about, because obviously when you're dealing with somebody who may ha- have dementia or what have you, the, the whole issue of consent plays here, uh, sensitizing the staff as well, um, all of these things have to be discussed. So I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased that our, that the Quebec government is doing this. And I think it should be done everywhere. And there are policies in certain countries where they've already, they can take examples from, but, uh, something that I think is important as a person who's aging myself, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I want there to be a policy. Uh, we're going to get to the whipped cream story in a second, but, uh, first, good hygiene after sex. What are the things you should and shouldn't do? Uh, after uh, after the good stuff. So this was a, an article on uh, WebMD, which you know, I, again, we we share some of the things that come up on our news feeds, right? So mm-hmm. uh, I I get WebMD sex stuff. Uh, so things that you should and shouldn't do after sex. Clearly, uh, washing up. You don't have to do it immediately, but uh, a gentle cleaning of yourself uh, after sex can protect people from infections like urinary tract infections. Uh, urinating after sex also. Uh, do not douche. For, for women, no need to clean the inside of your vagina. The vagina is a wonderful uh, self-cleaning organ. <laughs> so let's keep that in mind. Uh, cleaning up, keep it uh, simple so you don't need wipes and creams and sprays and all, all kinds of stuff. Like I said, emptying your bladder is important because uh, during sex, bacteria can get into your urethra, so which can cause the ups your chance of getting an infection. So by peeing, you're actually flushing out those uh, those germs. Uh, drinking a glass of water will help you flush away and staying hydrated, important. Uh, they suggest also wearing loose-fitting clothing uh, because, you know, your, your genitals are hot, sweaty places that are perfect spots for bacteria and yeast to thrive. I know this isn't all very appealing, but nonetheless, uh, (laughs) washing one's hands uh, after sex, of course, makes perfect sense. Cleaning your sex toys after you're done with them. 
Uh, very important. Taking care if you have a yeast infection, please. Uh, you don't want to pass it back and forth through sex. So if you've got that kind of infection, take care of it. Guys can get yeast infections too, by the way. Uh, look out for any itching, burning, or or discharge from the vagina or penis so make sure you treat this uh, think about getting tested also I think uh, if you're sexually active if you're with a new partner good idea to uh, get tested for sexually transmitted infections on a regular uh, regular basis and of course practice safe sex and think about if uh, if it's a for uh, pregnancy prevention what method uh, are you using yeah and if you're in it if you're in a long-term care home, make sure you go back to your own room before your kids come to visit. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. If that's if that's the bottom line, let's take it. <laughs> uh, finally, uh, a crazy story. This is, was actually sent in by a listener. Uh, whipped cream and how things went horribly awkward. All right, here's the, here's the letter. Hello, Dr. Lori. Sometimes things go wrong, even during the most passionate moments. And when you add canned whipped cream, it can get very, it can be very erotic, except when, and then they have a bunch of stars. I don't know what that means. Uh, when I was married, my husband and I used to enjoy the canned whipped cream thing. Having Having it licked off my nipples and clit was a turn-on. On this particular night, he tried to squirt some in my butt. I must be honest when I say I do not enjoy anal sex, but I do like my butt licked and tongued just a little, and I swear I felt the tip of the can in my butt but did not feel anything come out. We were having what I would say was hot sex, and we started to doggy. When I orgasm, as you know, it is a release and even your butt is affected and the whipped cream that was in there came out. It was not a lot, I swear. I did not think anything was inside. It was all over his chest. I did not crap on him, but the whipped cream on him was not the same color as it is out of the can. An immediate shower and changes of sheets was immediately required. <laughs> that, uh, that, that, I love these stories. <laughs> that went from a hot story to, uh, oh Disgusting. my God. <laughs> I want people to send in their stories. <laughs> Please do. Uh, try and top that one. Sex gone wrong. All right, coming up on the next edition of Passion, why do so many women have trouble with orgasm? Dr. Lori, we're going to get to that answer. Till then... Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Thanks. Passion with Dr. Lori Batito and John Paul. To submit questions, business inquiries, or just to connect, visit drlori.com. Thank you for supporting Passion.